My name is Ryan, and I want to welcome you to week 11 of our series from the book of, of Acts. Today, we're going to look at um, the very first recorded sermon of Paul. It's found in uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 26 to 39, and I, I'm going to read that to us on the front end of our time together. Uh, but with any luck, this is going to be um, one of, if not the most uh, encouraging sermons you will ever hear me preach. I've been dying to get this one off my chest. Verse 26 is Paul speaking. He said, Brothers, sons of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize him or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled their words by condemning Jesus. Though they found no grounds for the death penalty, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they'd fulfilled all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. Since he raised him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. For David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. This is God's word. Uh, this is not the first sermon of Paul, but this is the very first one that's recorded for us in God's word. And actually, we're only looking at a part of it because the full-length sermon is uh, it, it's a kind of a doozy here in chapter 13. But what is clear from this section that we're looking at today is that Paul's sermon was dominated by one particular subject, and that's the resurrection. Uh, and so this is a really important passage, really interesting passage for us to be able to, to talk about on a Sunday morning because it gives us kind of a behind-the-scenes look at how the resurrection was preached and how it was understood in the early church. Uh, and what's clear here is that the resurrection was understood in two ways, both as a fact and as a fulfillment. And so if, if uh, you and I want to be transformed the way that Paul and the early church Christians were uh, by the resurrection, what must happen is we need to understand uh, the resurrection the way that they did. And so uh, I just have two ideas that I want to walk through this morning. Uh, about the resurrection. And with that, we're going to get right to our first idea. It's that number one, the resurrection should be understood as a fact. One more time, it's that the resurrection should be understood as a fact. Verses 30 and 31 say this, but God raised Jesus from the dead and he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. Now, Paul is saying essentially two things in those two verses. He's saying on the one hand that Jesus was raised from the dead, 
Uh, and secondly, he's saying that he was actually seen by people. People who, by the way, were alive at the time that Paul gave this sermon. And so therefore could have been easily approached and questioned by anybody curious enough to do so, to immediately find out right then and there whether or not Paul's message was true. And so the, the point that I'm driving at here is that Paul did not teach and the early church Christians did not understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ to just be a metaphor or some wonderful, inspiring uh, symbol that was full of imagery. They understood the resurrection uh, to be a historical, impossible to dismiss fact. And, uh, and maybe this is going to resonate with somebody, but the, the thing about facts is that they can be incredibly irritating. Uh, a man named Jordan Peterson said this. He said, the truth is something that burns. It burns off dead wood. And people don't like having their dead wood burnt off, often because they're 95% dead wood. And what he, was, what he was trying to get across in that quote is the idea, and, and maybe you can relate to this, that every once in a while in life it's possible to come across a truth that is so powerful uh, that it can cause you to have to sometimes painfully recalibrate everything about you, whether it's a truth about you, a truth about people in your life, or a truth about the world that you live in. It's a truth that's so powerful that it can cause you to have to recalibrate everything about your life and rethink everything you thought you knew. And the truth of the resurrection did exactly that for Paul. Matter of fact, I think it's appropriate to say, I don't know anybody that would, that would have not wanted the resurrection to be true quite as much as Paul. Because remember, we looked at this just a few weeks ago, before Paul's conversion to Christianity, he hated everything that Christianity and Christians themselves stood for. Because Christianity taught that there was no need for a temple, because Jesus was the final temple. Taught that there was no need for a sacrificial system, Jesus was the final sacrifice. There was no need for a priest to mediate between you and God, because Jesus was the final, ultimate, true, and better high priest. And so as a Pharisee, there was really nothing that was more offensive to Paul. That undermined everything that he built his life on. That undermined his entire self-understanding and the way that he was sure humans were meant to relate to God. But then he saw Jesus, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He met the resurrected Savior of the world, and suddenly on a dime, it didn't matter any longer how offensive he thought those ideas were. It didn't matter how inconvenient he found them. It didn't matter how painful it was going to be for him to have to completely rethink his entire life. He couldn't avoid it anymore. It was standing right in front of him, staring in the face. He saw the resurrection. It was a plain historical fact for him. And really... Uh, that's the only way to explain Paul's conversion to Christianity and the rise of Christianity among first century Jews like him in general. Historians will tell us that it's, it's, it's flat out astounding that the message of Christianity took off like it did with first century Jews for two primary reasons. First and foremost, because first century Jews were the last people who would have entertained the idea that God could legitimately become a person. Greeks and Romans held to that idea that, that on occasion, you know, God's from the pantheon because it could occasionally take human form. But Jews didn't not only believe that that was nonsense, they believed that was blasphemy. That was actually one of the final things that caused them to declare the death sentence for Jesus when they understood that he, as a human, was claiming to be divine. The other reason that it's astounding that Christianity got off the ground with first century Jews is because some Jews in Paul's day, though not all, some Jews did believe in an, in an end of history event called the resurrection 
in which God would, would give the righteous, he would sort of restore everything and give the righteous resurrected bodies. Now, not even everyone in Judaism believed that. There were pockets of, of, uh, within Judaism like the Sadducees who did not believe in an afterlife or a resurrection or anything like that. So there, there wasn't even consensus about that. But the point is what absolutely no one believed in Paul's day, what no first century Jewish person would have believed was this idea that one person could get their resurrected body right in the middle of history with the rest of the world still broken by sin. And so the point is, if, if you decided to make up a story that you were going to pitch to first century Jewish people, you would have never made up a story that sounded like Christianity. You wouldn't have come up with this idea that a poor Jewish carpenter was conceived out of wedlock, that he only ever did anything publicly for three years, at the end of which he was abandoned by everyone he invested his life in, crucified on a Roman cross until killed, but good news, he was raised from the grave three days later. Historians remind us that that, that the, the message of Christianity in general and the doctrine of the resurrection in particular would have been completely flat out rejected by Jews in Paul's day. And so the most plausible explanation of how Christianity got off the ground with them is very simply that the message of Christianity is true. Now, now our worldview, the modern worldview, which is very skeptical about the possibility of miracles, obviously is, is a much different worldview from that of, of first century Jews because they accepted miracles. But one thing that I don't think we consider often enough, which really kind of serves as an apologetic to Christianity in and of itself, is the fact that we find the resurrection hard to believe because of our worldview, but so did first century Jews because of theirs. It might be for slightly different reasons, but we both found the resurrection something that was very difficult to believe in because of our worldview. And so the question, when you see the meteoric rise of Christianity all through the book of Acts, the question that should leave us asking, and, and, and it's a question you should ask yourself, is what kind of evidence would you need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And whatever your answer is, whatever you would need, whatever, however solid that evidence would need to be for you to deal with all of your doubts and get you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whatever you would need, evidently, people like Paul got evidence that's exactly that strong. Because Paul was just as skeptical to this story as you or I would be. But then he saw that Jesus was resurrected. He saw that it was a fact, and he had to accept it as so. And with that meant that as difficult and, and even offensive as he found the rest of the teachings of Christianity, he had to accept all of them as well. So before I, I, I move on from this point, let me just finish it by, by saying this. Um, a lot of people, maybe, you, maybe you've heard this or maybe you've thought this before yourself. A lot of people in our culture will, will say that they could never become a Christian because of something that they find really hard to accept in the Bible. They find, you know, one of, one of the particular teachings of Christianity really, really offensive. And so they say, I could, just, I could never be a Christian because I find some of these teachings just so difficult. I could never see, you know, holding on to that. And if that's where you're coming from or, or, or if that's where somebody that you know and love is coming from, let me just offer kind of two responses to that mindset and then we'll move on from, from, from the first point. First and foremost... If there is a God, it should not surprise us when things that he has to say challenges us. I think that's a fair statement to make. That if there is legitimately a transcendent God that is all-knowing and infinitely wise and all-powerful, 
then it really shouldn't catch us off guard that, 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 that God would, would have at least something to say that's going to challenge every culture and every individual that comes to him in some way, shape, or form. And so point being, if, if you move through life, or, or if we choose to move through life with this mindset that says, well, I'm, I'm not going to serve God unless absolutely nothing he says challenges me, then what will inevitably happen is you'll never serve God. You'll just become your own God. And historically, I don't know that there's anything that is more dangerous than people deciding to be their own gods. That's the first thing that I would say to, to that mindset. But, but secondly, to, to anyone uh, who, who has this kind of this mindset that says, I just couldn't get on board with Christianity because I, I find some of the teachings too offensive. The second thing and the last thing I would say to that is just consider who delivered this sermon. Consider the life, the story of Paul the Apostle. I think it's entirely safe to say that Paul found the teachings of Christianity more offensive than you and I do, you and I ever would, because it was so offensive to him, he justified murdering Christians. And none of us have probably done that, at least I hope not. But Paul did not decide to accept the truth of Christianity because one day he decided he liked all of the teachings about Christianity. He just looked at the truth of the resurrection, and that's really where you have to begin. And and, and so at the end of it all, uh, and I, I don't know if you've ever heard this before or thought this way before, but at the end of it all, there really is just one primary question. It's not the only question, but it's the primary question that the entire Bible should leave us asking ourselves. The, the singular question that the Bible primary, primarily should cause us to ask ourselves is just very simply, did a man named Jesus successfully predict and pull off his own death and resurrection? If he did not then by Paul's own words later on, writing to New Testament churches, if Jesus did not do that, then nothing in Scripture deserves further consideration. But if Jesus legitimately did do that, then everything in Scripture deserves further consideration. So first and foremost, the resurrection should be understood as a fact. Secondly, this is going to be our our, our second idea, and actually our, our last idea today, although I'm going to take my time here which everybody loves to hear a pastor say, number two, the resurrection should be understood as fulfillment. First, it should be understood as a fact. Secondly, it should be understood as fulfillment. So Acts 13, verses 32 and 33, Paul said, and we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the resurrection, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but the resurrection is God's way of fulfilling a promise that he made to his people in the Old Testament. That's what the resurrection is. So that raises the question, what promise did God make to his people? And the answer is there's, there's, there's promises all over the Old Testament. But what every single one of God's promises to his people in the Hebrew Scriptures have in common, they all have at least one thing in common, it's that every one of those, futures, every one of those promises was geared toward the future. That the promise that God gave his people over and over again is that the future was not one of meaninglessness, it was not one of purposelessness, it was not one of decay, but that the, that the future for God's people would be one of, of light and life and beauty and, and ultimately restoration. And, and something that I was considering this week, I, I think this is an amazing thing, the Roman Empire lasted for over 1,000 years. All right? Our country hasn't been around for quite a quarter of that yet. The Roman Empire was around for more than 1,000 years. It was one of the longest-lasting and most powerful human empires, period. 
But when you look at what happened when Christianity rose, what, what, you, what you see is that in just a matter of two or three centuries, the message of, of Christianity completely transformed that empire top to bottom. Transformed the way they thought about good and evil, about morality. Transformed the way that they viewed marginalized members of their own society. Transformed the entire foundation of, of their ethical system and the way they thought about ethics. To the point that, that Theodosius, around the year 320, I think it was, declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And what historians will tell us is that the reason for that is because of the doctrine of the resurrection. Because the doctrine of the resurrection was unlike anything the world had ever heard or seen before. It was not what the Jews were expecting, even though they had the Old Testament scriptures pointing forward to it. There wasn't anything like that in Greek or Roman mythology. You couldn't find anything like the resurrection in even Eastern mysticism. It was, it was entirely unique. And one of the main reasons that Christianity was so appealing to so many people in the ancient world was because the resurrection and its implications fulfills our longings for the future better than any other idea or doctrine that has ever been proposed. And what, what the resurrection proved then as it, as it came to life in the first century and what it still proves and promises today is essentially four things that I want to end, end our time together by walking through. Four things that the resurrection promises us. First off, it proves and it promises that there is a future beyond this life. Secondly, it proves that that future is deeply personal and relational. Thirdly, the resurrection promises that you can be certain you're going to take part in that future. And, and fourthly, that that future is going to wildly exceed all of our hopes and dreams. So let me just kind of as we begin moving toward the end here, let me walk through these four ideas. First and foremost, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that there is a future. Epicurus, uh, who was a founder of a group called the Epicureans, was a Greek philosopher. His, his ideas were really influential in Paul's day, and they're so influential that they're, 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 they still are around today. You probably know somebody that believes what Epicurus taught. Epicurus taught very simply that on the other side of death is nothing. You stop existing entirely. And therefore, he said, death really isn't something to be afraid of. The Epicurean kind of axiom was, if I am, then death is not. If death is, then I am not. And so there's really nothing to be afraid of because it can't coexist with me. Uh, now, even, even in the Jewish faith, like I mentioned earlier, there were some groups within Judaism that believed like that as well. The Sadducees believed there was no afterlife, there was no resurrection. Now, there were a lot of people in Paul's day who did believe there was something after this life, but nobody really had a, a great idea of what it was going to be like. But then came this belief Christians held to called the resurrection. And if you talk to one of the eyewitnesses of this thing and you saw their transformed life and you investigated and you saw the validity of their testimony and then you believed in the resurrection yourself, what that meant was that now you could know you had a future beyond this existence. And so first and foremost, the resurrection proves that there is a future beyond this life. But secondly, what it also proved is that that future is, is highly personal. All right, so like I just mentioned, Epicurus taught that when you die, there's really nothing to be afraid of because you just stop existing entirely. But other Greek philosophers, like the Stoics, who were also very influential in Paul's day, they believe more like Eastern people do. 
like think Hinduism and Buddhism. They believed uh, that when you die, you don't necessarily stop existing. You just continue on um, in a very impersonal way. You enter into the soul of the world. The metaphor that's used is it's almost like a drop of water going into the ocean. So they, they taught that on the other side of death, you might continue on, but you lose your individuality. You cease to be a person. You just become kind of a, a fabric of the universe. And this idea actually shows up in, um, in The Lion King. This is the circle of life kind of ideology. Some of you might remember little-known theologian Mufasa teaching his son that when they die, they become the soil. And, of course, the soil causes the grass to grow, and antelopes eat the grass, and lions then you know, do work on antelopes, and so it's the circle of life. And a good number of religion and, and people... Um, uh, whose, whose view of the afterlife, a, a good number of people still, still subscribe and are really influenced by that same idea. I remember when I, worked, um, when I worked in the Marley Station Mall, God rest her soul, she just went up for auction, broke my heart. But when I worked at Hollister in the Marley Station Mall, I was at lunch with a friend of mine one time and I was asking him what he thought existed on the other side of life. And he said, you know, if anything, reincarnation, which is basically just a shade of that idea. Here's, here's the problem with these two views of the afterlife. When Epicurus says that you don't have to be afraid of death because there's nothing on the other side of it, or, or when others say that, that you don't have to be afraid of death because you continue on past death just in a highly impersonal way, what those two views of the afterlife have in common is, is uh, something that I think is very serious and worth highlighting, that they both preclude the possibility of love. Now, now, whether or not you believe in a non-existent future or a non-personal future, what they have in common is that neither one of them contains the possibility of love. Because to give and receive love, you have to be a person. The reason that's worth highlighting to me is because what is crystal clear about human nature is that because God is a deeply relational God in the core of his being, and he has created us in his image as creatures who are deeply relational at the core of our being, what that means is that the main thing that fulfills us, something that we are designed to need as much as we need food or water or air, the main thing that gives our lives meaning is love. And by God's design, really, whether we're aware of this or not, one of the deepest longings, if not the deepest longing of the human heart, is for a love that lasts, a love that we don't have to be afraid of losing. That's what makes severed relationships on this side of eternity one of the most painful things that humans can, exist, can experience. And so I say that to say that when somebody subscribes to the idea where they say, you know, on the other side of death, I, you know, I'll just be done, I'll cease to exist, that's the end and I don't really care, what, what you're really saying when you believe that idea is that when I die, the moment that I die, the one thing that gives life meaning, the one thing that God has designed me to need at the center of my being as a relational creature designed in his image is going to be stripped away from, from, from you forever, and you're saying you just don't care about that. That doesn't bother you. And to anyone who subscribes to that idea, I just want to respectfully offer, I don't think you're being honest with yourself. I don't think you've really thought through the implications about that. Because the way that I understand it, it's actually a pretty horrifying thing to consider that on the other side of this life is pure meaninglessness. Because if I can just get kind of logical here, if, if as secularism teaches, 
If we came to be through pure meaninglessness, if nothing other than natural processes gave rise to human life as we understand it today, if we came from meaninglessness and we are moving towards meaninglessness with every breath that we take, then what that logically means is that everything about our lives is meaningless. The choices that we make, the relationships that we form, all of it is, is utter meaninglessness. And when you, when you pause and consider that, and you think through the implications of that, what you're left with is a worldview that gives you absolutely no resources in the midst of suffering, a worldview that, that gives you no good reason to make sacrifices for the good of others, a worldview that offers you absolutely no meaning in this life whatsoever. And the reason that I wanted to walk through that and kind of tease that out is because when you hold that idea up to the doctrine of the resurrection, you see how beautiful the teaching of the resurrection really is. Because the doctrine of the resurrection that Jesus was physically raised from the dead and that those who believe in him will be physically raised as well means what, it, what that promises you is that after death in Jesus, you will still be you and you will be with people who are still them. And so what the resurrection offered people for the first time in history, it promised people love without parting, a love that you didn't have to fear losing. And so secondly, the resurrection promises not just that there's a future after this life, but that that future is deeply personal and deeply relational. Thirdly, what the resurrection promised people is that you and I can be certain we're going to actually take part in that future. All right, if I can just pause for a moment here and point out something, it really doesn't do any good to talk about how there's this wonderful future that's available to us if we can't know that we're going to take part in that future. And when you look at, at the point that Paul was making in Acts chapter 13, and you, you kind of study what he's saying in his, in his sermon, what's clear is he's, he's, he's driving home the idea that in Jesus you can be certain that this, is, that, that this is a future that you're going to take part in. He said in verses 27 and 28, For the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize him or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled their words by condemning Jesus. Though they found no grounds for the death penalty, they asked Pilate to have him killed. Now, Paul isn't saying that to try to make the people in Jerusalem look bad. He's driving home the idea that while Jesus died, he did not die for his own sins, which raises the question, then why did Jesus die? And he goes on to answer that in verses 38 and 39. Paul said, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. What Paul is saying there is that the resurrection proves Jesus didn't die for his own sins because God vindicated him by raising him. And so if Jesus didn't die for his own sins, the question remains, whose sins did he die for? And the answer, of course, is yours and mine, and the resurrection is proof of that. So let me, let me offer you just a, the simplest analogy I can think of that helps me understand this. I am a proud member of Sam's Club. Sam's Club family, where are you at? Anybody? Yeah, wow, a lot of us. Wow, this, we'd start an army on behalf of Sam's Club. So the way that it works at Sam's Club is uh, after you fill up your cart, before you leave, you know this, there's an attendant by the door and you have to show them your receipt. Uh, and as long as you have that, that receipt in your hand, as long as you can produce that, then, then you're free to go with your industrial-sized pallet of butter or whatever you felt like picking up that day. Because what that receipt is, it's proof that everything in your cart's been paid for, and you're never going to have to pay for it again. And so you are free to go. Sam's Club 
has absolutely no claim on your soul. It's good news. Uh, here's the point that I'm, that I'm driving at here. One of the things that we all have in common on this field and online, wherever you're coming from, is we've all done things that we're not proud of. Things that, that maybe uh, you have a hard time forgetting. You know, things that for whatever stupid reason pop in, in your mind right when it's time to go to bed at night or when you wake up for no good reason at 3.30 in the morning. And a, a guy named Martin Luther said that, that when you are going through, you know, terrible suffering, when you're walking through really dark times in life or when you are dealing with the ever-present reality of your own death, if in that moment and in those times you're not absolutely sure of God's love for you, that all of your sins have been paid for, that none of them are going to separate you from him, that you're going to be welcomed into his presence for eternity the moment that your final breath escapes, if you aren't absolutely sure of that, then the knowledge of some bright, beautiful future does you absolutely no good. And what he was basically saying in his own terms and in his own language is that what you and I need more than anything because God's law is written on our hearts and, and we have in some sense this, this awareness of our own condemnation before a holy God, what you and I need more than anything else is a receipt that proves that nothing can be held against us and all of our sin has been paid for. And what Paul is saying in this sermon and what the, what the gospel message says in general is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest receipt in history. That what the resurrection does is it stamps across your and my life that everything we've done, every sin we're guilty of has been paid for and can never be held against us again. And the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead three days later is proof that the payment worked, that it's been received by a holy God on our behalf. And now, by grace through faith in Jesus, forgiveness is waiting for all who will take hold of that receipt. And so, put it this way, if, if, if the penalty for a crime is 10 years in prison, then when you walk out of that prison after 10 years, that crime's been paid for. And if the, if the penalty for sin is death, then when Jesus Christ walked out of death for you and I, it meant that it was paid for. And so the resurrection promises not only that there is a future beyond this life and that that future is deeply personal, but thirdly, it, it promises that you and I can be certain that we're going to take part in that future, that that future is for us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Amen? But fourthly and lastly, and I was actually looking forward to this one um, the most, what the resurrection also means, what it promises, is that this future that we've been talking about for several minutes now is going to wildly exceed, go above and beyond anything that we could think or dream or imagine. For those of you that, that know uh, my father, uh, you know that of all the ways that my dad could be described, I don't think poetry buff is the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, however, this may surprise you that throughout my childhood, I was just thinking this week, uh, there was one specific poem that my dad would recite pieces of to me over and over and over again. Uh, it's a very famous poem. It was written by Edgar Allan Poe, and it was called The Raven. He, he just said, amen, that's great. So I was actually reading that poem this week as that popped into my, my, my mind, and I read through the entire poem, and my immediate thought was, what the heck, Dad? 
That is the most horrifying poem that's ever been written. If you're not familiar with it, the poem is about a guy who lost the love of his life, a woman named Lenore, and in losing her, proceeds to lose his mind. And so he has no idea if he's going to get beyond this, and he's thinking, and he's pondering, and he's lost sleep. And, and, and at his door appears this giant raven perching on the bust above his doorway. And it's obviously a demon. It's not just a really big bird because it talks, and it keeps repeating this one horrifying word over and over, and it's got flaming red eyes. And he says it peers into his soul. And it dawned on me, the fact that this poem was recited to me throughout the formative years of life explains so much about what is wrong with me even to this day. But I'm not going to get into that right now. I'll save that for my therapist at a later date. The point is, what Edgar Allan Poe was trying to get across, which he, I think he got across in really dark, unsettling, disturbing terms through his poem, is this idea of the irreversibility of life. Because over and over through the poem, no matter what he asks, no matter what he says, the response he gets from the raven is always one haunting word. I'm sure you know it by now if you've ever read the poem. It's nevermore. So I have a, I have a son who's, who's just over a year and a half old. His name's Hayes. And in just a few weeks here, just a few days for all I, I know, uh, Hayes is actually going to be a big brother, which I'm really excited about. We got four baby on the way. Stay tuned. I uh, actually thought it could have been. I didn't know if I was going to get to teach this message because, you know, we're, we're kind of at that place, which is really exciting. But, uh, you know, those of you that have kids, you know that um, the, the, the relationship that you have with individual kids, it, it's just a unique thing. It's a special thing. You, you tend to kind of have things that are just you and that child's, you know, thing. And me and Hayes' thing that, uh, that's, that's our thing, our activity is bike rides. He's, he's just over a year and a half old, but uh, Hayes absolutely loves bike rides. And I'm, I'm convinced uh, he, we could be out there for, you know, eight hours and he would just be happy as a clam, which is amazing because Hayes is not known for being happy as a clam most of the time. But that boy loves his bike rides. So I, I have this little kind of front facing, it's called like a frog seat or something. It's a front facing seat that attaches to the handlebars of my bike and I'll, I'll throw a helmet on him and strap him in. And uh, we'll go for bike rides. And I'll put, I'll put in uh, earbuds. And usually what I do is I just listen to a, a Tim Keller sermon, who if you know anything about me, you know that, that Tim Keller is just, you know, he's my favorite preacher. So recently I was listening to uh, a sermon from Tim Keller. I was actually listening to him preach through this passage. And I was listening to him talk about the resurrection. And, uh, and as I was listening to him, his words were so moving to me and meaningful to me that I actually started getting emotional. I started to, to cry out on this bike ride with Hayes, uh, which caused my street cred to just plummet. You know, my neighbors know I'm not a tough guy anymore. And I want to share, the, share these words with you. Uh, I, I, I typed them out verbatim. And, uh, and this is, what I'm about to say is, is probably going to sound strange to some of you. This is probably a really heavy thing to say, uh, but I just want to open up to you. When I was done listening to what I'm about to read you, I felt like I was more prepared to die than I ever had been in my life. I felt that I was more prepared than I ever had been to face eternity myself. Keller was talking about how, and he, he was saying this as, as a man who was a lot older to a congregation who was a lot younger. He, he preached in, in Manhattan. He doesn't preach anymore. And uh, he actually just announced that he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So this was a teaching he delivered years ago. But he was talking about the cross and the resurrection. And he said how when you're young, the cross just means everything to you. 
uh, because you've made so many stupid mistakes and they're, they're right you know, in front of you and you're so aware of them and you're wondering, you know, how could God love me and forgive me and accept me? And there's the cross and it's the greatest message in the world. But he said, I want you to know that as you age, the resurrection becomes more and more important to you because as you age, your future gets closer and closer to you. <clears throat> and with that, let me read you what he said. <clears throat> he said, when your youth is gone, it feels irreversible. Nevermore. When your health is gone, it feels irreversible. Nevermore. When people die, it feels irreversible. Nevermore. Everything is going. You never get it back. It's irreversible. But the resurrection says no to nevermore. See, even a religion that promises heaven that promises that somehow your soul will continue in bliss, even that only gives you a consolation for what you've lost. But the resurrection is the restoration of what you've lost. In the resurrection, you get it back. You get your body back. And you don't just get your body back. You get the body you always wished you had that you never had. You get your life back. The life you always wanted and never had. You get this world back, renewed and perfect. It's the reversal of irreversibility. It says no to nevermore. No other religion promises anything like this. And it's one of the reasons the world looked at this and said, I want to believe that. Listen, as we close and uh, the worship team comes back up, I just want to speak to two groups of people listening to me right now. First and foremost, if you're listening to this and, um, and you're on the fence about Christianity, I just want to offer you this. If you don't at least want to believe what I've laid out for you today, if you don't at least want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of your own resurrection through belief in him, if you don't at least want that to be true, then I don't think you've understood the gospel. I don't think you've understood everything that God promises you personally in Jesus. And if that's where you're coming from, then I hope you come on back and you keep leaning in and you stay curious and you keep investigating so you can find out what this is really about. Because I'm more convinced than I ever have been, this is worth dedicating your whole life to. But for those of us who already believe this, everything that I've talked about today, but it's not real to you, see, I think that's where Christians live. I think where we spend most of our life is that we know these things with our head, but it doesn't, it doesn't permeate to our heart because of our failure to spend time. One of the biggest problems that we have is we spend so much time in this world and so little time in the presence of our Creator. And so because of our failure to spend time in His Word and to pray the truths of His Word into our hearts, what happens is we believe these things with our mind, but it's not a lived reality. And if that sounds like you, if that resonates deeply with you, then I just want to close by saying this. There's a reason that Paul and every other early church preacher, every time they had the chance to speak publicly about what their Savior had done for them, there's a reason that every time they preached, they centered their messages on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because they knew that when we really grasp this, it will produce a hope in us and a strength in us and a peace in us and a courage in us that nothing can take away. And it'll help us to face the
the irreversibility of life, knowing that it's not irreversible in Jesus. Nothing is irreversible in Jesus. That on the other side of our final breath, because of our Savior, what's waiting for us is not just a consolation for the life that we've lost, but the restoration of the life that we've always wanted but never had on this side of eternity. And when that truth sinks deeply into our hearts, it'll transform us like nothing else can. But it all stems from understanding the resurrection as both a fact and fulfillment. That's it. And that's all. Let me pray for us. Father, of all the things that I could ask you for at the end of this teaching, as, as, as much as a privilege it is, Father, that you would allow me to tell people this message that has survived for 2,000 years and brought people into your family and transformed people's lives as much as, it, as, as an honor as it is to teach this, God. The only thing I would ask you at the outset of this teaching, would you let us be a group of people that are shaped by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those of us that have not quite believed in it yet, God, open their eyes to the light of your truth. Let it shine so brightly that they cannot help but take notice to it, just like Paul couldn't help but take notice to it on the road to Damascus. And for those of us who already do believe, God, let us believe more deeply. Let us root the hope of our lives that there is no such thing as irreversibility, that what waits for every single one of us in Jesus is restoration. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.